Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and as you know, I'm here to give you the latest news, findings, and analysis from the Empire Center. So let's get started. Despite persistent claims to the contrary, New York's legislative employees are not eligible to unionize under the state's sweeping public sector collective bargaining law, commonly known as the Taylor Law. In a new report, Empire Center fellow Ken Girardin tracks the history of the law, revealing that lawmakers had no intention of applying it to themselves and, by extension, to their own staff. We're currently watching how this plays out as a group of state Senate employees are working towards unionization. On the healthcare front, Empire Center's Bill Hammond testified before the Assembly Aging Committee, sharing his expertise on home-based long-term healthcare. Bill's testimony builds on a report he recently issued, which looks at the home healthcare industry in New York and how it compares to other states. There are numerous signs of trouble in New York's home care program, including high spending, rapid growth, and a continued reliance on nursing homes over personal care. Despite complaints that the industry is facing a shortage of available workers, employment in the home care industry has nearly doubled in 10 years, a sign of the program's rapid and unsustainable expansion. New York is requiring 100% of new passenger car and truck sales to be zero emissions vehicles by 2035. But that plan could be just as improbable as it is harmful for middle and low income New Yorkers. In a new Empire Center report, James Hanley reveals the costs and consequences of the law that makes all electric vehicle sales a goal of the state, establishing regulations that would move New York towards ending the sale of any new internal combustion engine vehicle. To meet the intermediate goals set out along the way, New Yorkers would have to increase their zero emissions vehicle purchases by almost 900% within the next three years. Now that seems a little bit far-fetched, but James does note that, at least at current pacing, the natural market demand could lead to sufficient growth in zero emissions vehicles, enough growth to meet the state's long-term goals for reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Finally. According to just-released IRS data, the number of New York tax filers with adjusted gross income above $1 million decreased in 2020 by about 1.3%. This decline came even as the number of millionaire filers nationally was growing by nearly 10%, from roughly 554,000 to 608,000. We'll have to wait a little bit while longer to see where these millionaire tax filers were going and if their leaving New York State was permanent or just to escape COVID. Of course, for more news and analysis, like the stories we've covered today, visit our website at www.empirecenter.org and follow along with Messages of Necessity, where we'll continue to break down stories like this to keep you better informed about New York State. Well, welcome to the show, Wei Wa Chin. It is a pleasure to have you on Messages of Necessity. Welcome and hello. Thank you, Denny. Um, delighted to be here. Well, Wei Wa uh, is somebody who we met as we started learning more about what parents thought about charter schools in the state of New York. Wei Wa is with a group called the Chinese American Citizens Alliance of Greater New York, or KEGHAGNI, and she is the charter president for them. Wei Wa, we are so pleased when we got to meet you and learn that you represented a whole community of parents who were interested in charter schools. First, 
for our audience, can you explain what a charter school is? Because I think there's a lot of confusion about what that is. Well, one of the first things, and I should say thank you for inviting me, Debbie. Uh, one of the first things that you should all know is that these are publicly funded schools. So you do not have to pay tuition. That is one of the first things that a lot of people do not understand about the charter schools. Some of them think that they're private schools, some of them think that because they wear uniforms, they must be parochial schools. No, these are publicly funded schools that serve the community. And uh, you do not have to, to pay, not only that, uh, any kid who can get in by lottery. It's not by a, a, a test or um, sending in your resumes and your transcripts with your grades, uh, getting references. It's none of that. But it's really going into the community, uh, setting up those schools that are by charter uh, from the state that are allowed to um, have a different program. And of course, they have to cover certain things in the curriculum, but they can teach in a different manner from uh, the other public district schools. So usually when you call them public district district schools, that's the kind of public schools that most kids go to in their neighborhood. So why would parents, why should parents be interested in charter schools? What are the advantages of a charter school? Well, the public, the public charter schools, the charter schools, I'll just call them the charter schools, uh, tend to be different in the way they teach and they, they focus on different things. So even though that uh, they are open to all the different students, you could all apply, uh, they may have a different manner of instruction. Um, some of the very successful schools in some of the poorest neighborhoods with education school death, um, deserts, you might call them. You have food deserts, you have education deserts. Uh, the public school buildings are there, but the instruction is not very good. And so, I think that the charter schools coming into, for example, New York City has really made a sea change in uh, what education can be, what public education can be, because they're achieving extremely good results against their other public district schools. So if we looked at the uh, top 25 uh, public grade schools in New York City, the top 25 in math scores, 23 of them happen to be charter schools. Mm -hmm. So... I think that that's something that means we should be thinking about what's happening there. Not every charter school is good, obviously, but I would say that if you look at what's happening, that, that number should immediately make people think, you know, we can achieve this in more schools, more communities throughout the city, throughout the state. Okay, so let's talk about the problem. If charter schools are performing relatively well, and I agree, not every charter school is fantastic, but the numbers you just gave us are pretty impressive. Why don't we have more charter schools then if, if they're so impressive? What's the problem? There's, there's something <laughs> called the charter cap. And that is, I, would say, I, I don't want to say quite that it's arbitrarily imposed, but it is imposed uh, by the state uh, to limit the number of charters. And so that's something that parents need to know that if we want more charter schools, we have to lift the cap. So we have to lift the cap of the, uh, that's imposed on the charter schools to be only of a certain number when we should be trying to uh, increase the, if it works, we should increase it. Uh, if it didn't work, we should, we should, let's have fewer charter schools. 
So that's the first thing that we have to do and say that you know, let's let's get more out there. Um, and it's a it's a challenge because a lot of people don't know about charter schools, and we start off with a lot of myths about them, and then later the other side of it is that um, it takes some years, but they're pretty fast. You know, charter schools, once they, they're not about brick and mortar. They're not about, oh, we've got to build a building and it's going to take years and years. But it's uh, there are different ways of trying to address that brick and mortar part um, and just focus on getting the teachers, the good teachers, uh, having a, a philosophy of instruction also. I think that if you come into a charter school and have, for example, uh, in, in Success Academy, where they uh, they will will teach you and what are some of the character traits that you have to build. Now, these are things that you build, and it has to do with basic things that we used to think were common, but they've become uncommon. It's uh, focusing on the academics. It's focusing on discipline. And discipline meaning an internal discipline of trying to say that I am going to be a part of this education process. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to commit myself to doing the work. I'm going to be part of this project to make myself better and to make the community better. But you have to have kids who are going to study and they give them the structure to do so. And these are the same kids that you're going to find in the same community. So, uh, so far we've heard that Charter, there's a lot of myths around charter schools. These are publicly funded. They are assigned by lottery and that parents, if they knew more about this, would probably be interested in the option. However, the state has a cap preventing the number of schools from increasing, right? So um, what are you and your organization doing? What are the parents that you work with doing to try to solve this problem? Well, uh, to begin with, for Katani, a lot of the parents are Asian. Mm-hmm. So they're immigrant parents. Uh, they really do not have the resources in many cases to know all of the different types of schools that are available. They do not have the opportunity to go to private schools in many cases. Um, there might be some who, who can, but I would say that on the average, most of these uh, parents cannot afford to uh, give a high quality private education to their kids. They don't. So we have to reach out to them and instruct them of this, inform them of this. And that was one of the challenges uh, because a lot of families did not know about them. They are very, very interested in education. They're concerned about the quality of public school, or public district school education, which has continued to go down. You know, the, it just came out recently, you probably know about it. The NAEP results say that the math scores have plummeted in the last couple of years. The first time in the, since the 1970s when they started tracking a lot of the scores across the nation. And uh, when you have uh, this is a deep drop and the first time, um, it is a concern that, that should should make us all think, what are we trying to do and how do we uh, uh, address that? And so we have to think about that kind of refocus on the basic education uh, uh, that is necessary. And uh, for the uh, Asian and Chinese parents, uh, they have always thought of, they have typically, typically, not every single one, typically think that, also think that education is a very important aspect of uh, one's growth and one's 
ability to perform in society. So I think that with the uh, that kind of beginning, you can do more things about it. There are more Asians now who are applying to the charter schools as they get to know about them. And uh, they also think that we should have more of them. So uh, you don't have one in any of the Chinatowns, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, why don't we have some? If other communities are starting to think about it and, and benefit from it, uh, we should be thinking about that too. Uh, the Asians know, many of them coming from a different uh, country, that the education standards here in America are actually much lower in many ways than they had from the country that they departed. So uh, what, what you have in fifth grade uh, or, or eighth grade math is something that they may be teaching in third grade or fifth grade respectively. So uh, we know that things should be different. And that's why a lot of programs have been formed privately in the Asian community for this education enrichment. So I know that a lot of people look at it and say, oh, you're Chinese, you have all these uh, test prep companies and things like that. Well, no, no, it's not test prep. It's it's actually studying. It's Mm -hmm. giving a lot of different resources to kids when they know that uh, they're not learning as much as they should in in school, and they try to scrape away. These are not expensive programs. There are people who come in with $1 bills to pay for their weekly sessions. Um, because some of these are immigrant families and you go to some of these uh, uh, education and after school resources, these weekend resources, uh, there are poor people who are coming in to pay with dollar bills that they may have gotten, who knows whether it's a, a vendor or somebody like that. But they want to make sure that the kids do not fall behind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because if you fall behind, you have to try to supplemented. Yeah. So this is, this is uh, such a paradox, right? Because in America, we want to be the best at everything and we are, we are falling behind and failing with our education system. And what you're describing is parents being entrepreneurial and doing what they can to make sure that their kids, their kids don't fall behind. Wait, well, let me ask you this final question. Are you optimistic we can solve this problem in New York? I don't think we'll solve it entirely, but we could certainly move forward to improve it for a lot of kids. And so I think it's very important that we uh, try to lift the shutter cap uh, and create more options, more good options for our families everywhere. Well, thank you for the work that you and Kakagni are doing. Uh, we've had the pleasure of being on some of the sessions that you've been doing with your parents. Appreciate all the work you're doing to help uh, parents understand what a charter school is and what the options are that they have. So thank you for your work and thanks for visiting with us today. Thank you, Debbie, and thank you, Empire Center, for inviting me. Great. Thank you. Hi, this is Peter Warren. I'm Director of Research for the Empire Center. And I'm Emily DiVertola. I'm the Education Policy Analyst. So Emily and I are going to talk a little bit today about um, COVID learning loss and the response to it from the New York State regions, including the lowering of graduation standards. So Emily, we know there's a lot of COVID learning loss in New York State and around the country. The evidence that we saw most recently was from the 
the national NAEP exams that showed state level results. But the, there's a question of whether how much that is going, that learning loss is going to result in, uh, in impact on graduation rates, on reduced graduations, because uh, the state regions have acted to reduce the standards, essentially, of what's necessary to graduate. Um, they started out during when the pandemic first struck, um, they canceled the regents exams because students were not being assembled together interims to take the exam. That was in the 2019-20 school year. In the next school year, the exams were administered, but they were not um, considered necessary for graduation. They weren't a graduation requirement. Um, and then most recently in May, um, now that the exams are again required for graduation, it's required to pass the exams, while the threshold for passing the exams has been lowered. So can you talk a little bit about what the regents did? Yes. So recently the Board of Regents added some flexibility to a graduation appeals process. And this process allows schools to appeal to give diplomas to students who have not scored high enough on their regents exams. Um, among other things, the new passing threshold for the exams is a 50%. So when I first heard that, I thought, okay, that is pretty low for a state's exit exam. From a 65. So 65 is was the old passing, and yep. now it's a, a Now it's down to a 50. They both sound pretty low to me, but especially a, a 50%. Um, but after all, this was to alleviate some disruption due to the pandemic years, so maybe some flexibility is warranted here. Uh, however, when I saw just how low the threshold really was, um, it changed my mind. Uh, how, for, how low you mean? So 50, is that does that mean they have to get half the questions right in the test? So you would think it's actually even less than that. The 50% is the scaled score, which is a score that has been converted to fit on a scale, kind of mm -hmm. like when a college professor applies a curve. Um, mm -hmm. But the raw score tells you the actual percent required to pass. So for example, the Algebra 1 exam, a student only needs a raw score of 20%. So 17 out of 86 points. 17. And this is a multiple choice test. Yes, a multiple choice test with a few open-ended, but most of the points do come from that multiple choice section. Um, actually, it's so low. A math teacher found that a student could choose C for every answer and still have enough points by chance to be in passing range. So if the bar is so low in order to actually pass the exams in terms of the percentage of questions you have to get right, you mentioned there's an appeals process. And I, I believe so the appeals process is you can appeal based on how the student actually did in the classroom on their grade. So, did, I mean, do, does that mean that these are students who, who did who did what pretty well? Well, you would think so. Um, but. The appeals process itself has been granted some new flexibility, um, and it's become so flexible that a student can graduate with these low scores, even if they are failing the course. Um, they would only have to remediate the coursework as part of the old appeals process, but both remediation and the initiation of appeals are up to the discretion of the school. So in other words, they can fail the class from a grading perspective mm -hmm. and fail the regents and still get the passing credit and get their diploma and what they need, the license they need to do that would come from the school at the discretion of the school and the school. And, and that's going to help the school's graduation rate to the extent that that school, gra that student graduates and instead of not graduating. Yeah. Kind of an inside job. Start to finish. Interesting. Um, yeah. And I mean, really, these scores and these new guidelines are not enough to confirm literacy and numeracy at the high school level. 
Um, and also worthy of note, the students graduating during these years may have been struggling to achieve reading and math proficiency since third through eighth grade, according to a recent report by the state comptroller's office. So yes, more kids will be eligible to graduate under these new guidelines and more students will receive their diplomas. But, mm -hmm. you know, at what cost? What happens when these kids sit down for their first college entrance placement exam or show up to the first day on a new job and they don't have the skills that their diploma mm -hmm. says that they do? Um, yeah. So if you're, if you're lowering the standards, it seems like you're by definition, you're sort of devaluing the diploma. You're, you're lowering what is required to get that diploma. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because there has been a debate over the years about the regents exams. There are people who are sort of pro and con regents exams. Mm -hmm. um, but the regents do provide at least a, a single objective standard under normal times, uh, an objective standard. Um to compare kids across the state. And the alternative to that is, you know, the the other ways of measuring kids tend to be more subjective. Grades is the main thing. Um, and we recently got an indication of just how subjective grades can be because there was an audit in September that was done of the Rochester city school system, which was quite, quite revealing. It showed that e even the grading scale that they use is different than is used pretty much everywhere else, where instead of a 4.0 scale, it was a 4.5 scale. Mm -hmm. And then students got extra. They, they basically had their, their grade would be increased, not just from taking AP courses, but even from taking regents courses. So, and this is, again, is not something other schools do. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and that clearly had an impact, has had an impact on Rochester's graduation rate mm -hmm. because about a third of the students in the school have been graduating, even under that skewed grading system, they've been graduating with a C average or less, which means a lot yeah. of them probably would not have met the standards for graduation at all, mm -hmm. if not for the inflated grades. Yeah. So, you know, you there's one sort of issue, you know, maybe that you run into with objective exams, but once you take away that objective standard, and then um, you have the fact that the schools themselves have an interest in maintaining their graduation rates, yeah. Um, then the question is, is there, you know, what is, what does that diploma, getting back to your point about reading and, you know, literacy, quantitative, quantitative literacy, what does that diploma actually connote? Mm -hmm. When you hand that kid a diploma, what are you telling that student and what are you telling their parents and employers? Yeah. Um, you know, if there's no objective standards, you know, what value does that diploma actually have? Yeah. A diploma really should be a valid receipt of literacy and numeracy, at least. And, and I think that's probably what most people assume it is, but I'm not sure if that's an assumption that can be taken for granted. Yeah, thank you right about that. Thank you for joining us on uh, Messages of Necessity, and we look forward to talking with you again. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.